0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another Privacy International podcast from our Reproductive Rights and Privacy Project. I am Sarah Nelson, and I lead the Reproductive Rights Project here at PI. Today, I'm speaking with Tasneem Mua and Ambika Tandon, both of which work with the Center for Internet and Society in India. I am speaking with them today about research they did with PI about data exploitation in sexual and reproductive rights in India. I asked them to describe the landscape of reproductive rights in India, um, specifically related to the ability to access contraception, um, the ability to access abortion care, and also the accessibility of medically accurate sexual health information. We also talked about foreign organizations that work in the country to develop different technologies to provide information about health and um, information about different reproductive services. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tasneem and Ambika. So I guess to begin, Could you maybe give an overview of reproductive rights in India, um, specifically related to access to contraceptives, um, abortion care, and medically accurate sexual health information?
1: Okay, so I'll start with this question. Um, In terms of reproductive rights from a legal perspective, there is the um, MTP Act, which was initially, initially drafted in 1971 and has had several amendments since then. And within the act, women have the right to reproductive autonomy over their body in terms of the choice that they make. And they are given that right um, to have that autonomy as well as the right to privacy. Especially, And that right to privacy has been um, emphasized since the 2017 judgment. Um, and so from a legal perspective, nationally women are given the right to choose um what reproductive healthcare services they would undergo. And in terms of abortion, there are definitely restrictions on abortion and when they can seek it in terms of at what gestational period they can seek out abortions. Um, and so there are restrictions in terms of that, but um, women are allowed to seek out contraception, seek out abortions from a legal national perspective. And that often doesn't translate into reality. One, because uh, the national government kind of delegates the enforcement to state governments. And so state governments have their own kind of rules and approval processes for public and private facilities in terms of what constitutes a safe and uh, legal abortion. Um, And in addition, there are also kind of different rules around contraception. And if we look at Chennai, for example, and Tamil Nadu in 2005, when the state government uh, decided, uh, the national government, and then the state government decided to make contraceptive pills available for people in Tamil Nadu, there were groups who kind of rallied against that and lobbied against that, saying that uh, those pills induced abortion, even though they didn't. And because of that, the state um, kind of redacted that bill and didn't allow those contraceptive pills to be sold anymore. And so there's a lot of variation between states. Um, and so the, the legality of abortion, of contraception and of the right of the woman to choose doesn't necessarily translate. And um, there's a lot of misinformation around the legality of that and a lack of awareness among people who are supposed to be providing these services.
2: Um, yeah, I'll, uh, quickly, uh, add to what Tasneem was saying. Um, so with, the, the medical termination of pregnancy act, uh, 1971 there uh, like Tasneem mentioned, there have been a few amendments and, um, the original act was, uh, was more limiting, uh, than the, uh, more recent amendments have, uh have sort of allowed more space uh, and more uh, autonomy to women. So, uh, for example, one of the provisions that have been amended is that uh, you can now seek abortion up to 24 weeks um, instead of the uh, earlier 20 weeks. And uh, the issue, though, is that that still uh, requires the uh, approval of two medical practitioners and uh, up to 12 weeks the approval of one medical practitioner That's lower than the two uh, which was required earlier but it still places bodily autonomy in the hands of the medical practitioner so uh, you still have to um, gather approval and uh, like Tasneem was saying there are uh, enforcement issues uh, because of that because it's not uh, a right that you can um, sort of demand abortions as such you have to the provision of seeking approval means that there can be um ad hoc requirements that come up uh, locally at uh, given different medical practitioners um and the other uh, amendment that i wanted to highlight was uh, that earlier the uh, provision of uh, seeking abortions for um, forced uh, for sorry for um the failure of contraception was only limited to married women and uh, now that has been uh, sort of broadened and uh, includes uh, all women within that scope. So that's, uh, th- those are some positives from recent amendments uh, as recent as March uh, 2020. Uh, but, but there do continue to be issues around bodily autonomy
1: anyone who is under the age of 18 has to seek consent before they uh, t- choose to have undergo any of these procedures or any of these services. And um, that also creates more stigma for young unmarried women, um, especially if they undergo consensual sex because anyone under the age of 18 is considered a minor. And so if they did go to a public facility, it would be reported to the police, I believe. And so that also creates a sort of, Criminalization along with um, illegalization of, uh, or like a, a sense of illegalization around uh, anyone under 18 who is seeking the services. Is
0: that for both abortion and access to contraceptives?
1: I think that's yes. just for, oh, that's uh, for, uh, for. for, for
2: uh, contraceptives, in the sense that you are, so any sex uh, that you're having uh, while under 18 is considered illegal. So if you, while there's no law around uh, accessing contraceptives, uh, so you could uh, have access, but there is no right to uh, have access to contraceptives as a minor. And as an abortion seeker, you are uh, in all probability, in all likelihood will be approaching a private provider, because if you do approach a public medical provider, then you will have to go through a legal procedure. It will become a medical legal case.
0: So in the case of an under 18 person seeking contraceptives, there would be police involvement with that then? Yes. Yeah.
2: So uh, I was uh, interviewing women and providers in across uh, major hospitals in Delhi, um, government hospitals and uh, one of the uh, issues that came up around consent was that uh, the uh, providers were hesitant to uh, provide to to go ahead and give approval for abortions for anyone that they thought was um, it was so unmarried women are, are uh, going through multiple uh, screening levels and Um, So one of the criteria that they had to screen women was if they thought they looked literate or had an understanding of uh, what they were talking about. So uh, and this provision uh, and this criteria was being uh, applied regardless of the age of the woman. So uh, I had approached Um, and and asked about unmarried women who were, say, around 25, 26. Um, So they said that if it's someone like you who looks like they know what they're talking about, then um, we would uh, go ahead and take that risk. Um, And and this was the uh, terminology that was used. So there's a sense of risk around uh, giving approval to uh, unmarried women who are seeking abortions. And uh, they wouldn't do that if uh, it was the case that if they, if the woman seemed like uh, she was either illiterate or, or was not able to explain very well uh, what the circumstances around her abortion were, then they would involve the police and it would
0: become a medical legal case again. Could you talk about how sort of different forms of data exploitative tech are being developed to delay or curtail access to, de- to reproductive health services, including um, access to contraception and access to abortion care?
1: In terms of data exploitative technology, I think um, in general with technology, we came to kind of two conclusions, which is that the integration of data exploitative technology within reproductive health care demonstrates that the provision and restriction of reproductive healthcare services are not mutually exclusive, especially in the, in the case of database technologies. Um, and because there are a variety of database technologies and a variety of ways in which data is collected uh, from women w- within the healthcare system, um, all these private, public, and even non-governmental actors who are responsible for collecting this data in exchange for promoting sort of women's autonomy and women's empowerment um, are kind of pursuing those objectives through very uh, narrow lenses and through ways in which that are kind of averse to a majority in, of the population, especially women who are from rural areas or women who are highly stigmatized for seeking out these services. Um, and another, another kind of conclusion that we came to is that uh, the policy around uh, database, data exploitative technologies or the lack thereof actually um, is, also contributes to kind of ex- exacerbating the existing inequities and creating new inequities for a lot of women who are seeking out these services. So some of the examples that our research talks about are um, the different databases that have been created for provision via ADHAR. And so there, so there was initially the MCTS, which is the mother-child tracking system, which was implemented nationally in 2011, I believe, and that has slowly been linked to the uh, national athar system, so that any time a woman does try to seek out this service or is trying to um, see, uh, is trying to access maternal benefits, for example, has to provide her. Um, ADHAR number and her ADHAR card when uh, going to a public facility. And the data that is linked to her ADHAR is, or the data that is required for her to seek out the services then linked to her ADHAR and then centralized. And so, And because there is uh, really no data protection policies and data privacy policies in place for that data specifically, it is very vulnerable to the system and those who have access to it um and so and because there are have been instances of data leaks um women are made vulnerable to the fact that you know their data could be leaked and this is especially dangerous for women who would be stigmatized for seeking out these services um for young women unmarried women um and people who uh would again would be stigmatized for seeking out the service and then there's also um the integration of ICT and how and and apps such as Dr. insta and Practo and even apps that are or SMS based services that are kind of uh, implemented by not only domestic actors but also international actors and designed by international actors because a lot of these data exploitative technologies are seen as something that uh, works well with development narratives as well um, international development narratives as well as how India wants to see reproductive healthcare go within a digital India kind of landscape. Um, And so when when women, or when anyone kind of tries to seek out healthcare services from these these apps or from these uh, M-based or E-based initiatives, mobile-based and internet-based initiatives, then uh, sometimes that requires, again, them to input data and input information about themselves that isn't necessarily protected. And especially when these kind of spaces are advertised as safe spaces or places where women can seek out services that would normally be considered taboo or that they wouldn't be able to access otherwise, um, that creates a really kind of uh, unsafe space for a lot of women and creates a notion of safety that, is, uh, could easily, could, that isn't necessarily true um and then in terms of going back to the mcts and the adhar and the databases that are being created a lot of these databases will uh, or eventually the government wants to see them kind of inform ai and artific- uh, ai being artificial intelligence within reproductive healthcare and with with the ai services they want these databases to kind of inform um what the AI services do, obviously, because AI needs a lot of data to work. And a lot of the data that is being fed into these AI systems is primarily based around pregnancy and fertility data, and uh, doesn't really include a wide range of services that people seek out, especially because um, a lot of people who do seek out these services don't necessarily want it to be reported on their attire. So they go to private facilities, or they go to facilities that wouldn't ask for that. And so, a lot of the data around the number of abortions that um, are being performed doesn't exist, one. And two, the, the data that does exist around pregnancy and fertility for these AI systems is extremely quantified and medicalized and te- and created under this biomedicalization, biotechnology kind of lens. And so the event of pregnancy itself is quantified, for example. So the AI, AI system would see it as Um, pregnancy being this number of visits, or this number of postnatal immunizations for the child, or this number of whatever kind of metric that is supposed to define pregnancy. So not only does it really narrow the definition of what reproductive health is, but it also quantifies it to in a really formulaic and um, inapplicable way for a lot of women. Mm -hmm. And so um, the way that these data exploitative technologies are working while they're trying to, you know, create accessible reproductive healthcare services for women um, across, you know, across a lot of different geographical areas. Um, it's not necessarily doing that. And, and in fact, is actually creating an unsafe space um, and creating, allowing a kind of feeding data into some an infrastructure that isn't necessarily Built to protect and hold that much data, and is also um, through data, kind of redefining and narrowing what reproductive healthcare and reproductive healthcare services really mean.
0: Hmm. Really interesting.
1: Um, yeah. So um, I'll,
2: I'll chip in uh, there as well and uh, just um, highlight some issues in addition to uh, what Tasneem spoke about. Uh, With regards to the so, the first is with with the narrowing down of the definition of reproductive health. Um, This has been an issue um, that has uh, been pervasive within the development uh, sector and the governance of reproductive health more broadly as well. And uh, they really come out uh, when these systems are then being datafied and uh, there is a very sort of narrow lens through which reproductive healthcare is being defined. So there are areas such as um, uh, gender-based violence, for example, that have been seen as more contentious and are therefore not uh, included uh, in the space of uh, reproductive health, even though they do have a direct impact on these. And the other uh, issue, in addition to privacy, is that um, there uh, are targets that are set for a lot of these uh, metrics or indicators so uh, institutional deliveries is uh, is there is a target based approach around that there's a target target based approach around uh, sterilization and uh, the um, basically bringing in both men and women uh, to sterilize uh, across rural parts of the country. Um, more uh, starkly and and these um, when these targets are not being met, uh, these are uh, essentially monitored through uh, the data systems that have been set up in place and so the issue there is that these are not optimized to uh, bring more autonomy to women or to uh, broaden the service base uh, for women but rather uh, to meet the Uh, or monitor the targets that have been set up um, in a top-down manner by governments uh, and international donors. Uh, So with sterilization, this was uh, an example that I have is from uh, Madhya Pradesh uh, just last month uh, where the chief minister had announced that uh, health providers would lose their jobs uh, if they are not able to bring in a certain amount of men to be sterilized uh, by the end of the reporting period, which was in March. And uh, there was so much backlash around this that it uh, this notification had to be retracted. But uh, it is something that continues to happen in, um, in in the health system across the country.
0: Most people that I think will listen to this and watch it will have an understanding of what ADHAR is and the mother-child tracking system that you mentioned, but could you maybe briefly describe those systems um, and how the two interact and if there are other initiatives related to reproductive health that feed into Aadhaar as well Um, and just kind of expand more on the um, potential risks that come with that centralization of information.
2: Uh, Yeah, so the Aadhaar is uh, India's uh, biometric identification program. Um, it was launched in 2009, and since then has been integrated across government services and um, welfare. And as part of that, uh, the first link to uh, reproductive health and the Aadhaar is that um, the uh, sort of provision to uh, or the law that uh, is regulating sex-selective abortion um, is uh, takes the approach of regulating technologies that are able to. Um, cater to sex selective abortion so ultrasound technology essentially and um, the regulation happens in a manner that providers have to um, register themselves with the government and they have to uh, uh, they have to procure a license and uh, after that they have to uh, take identification of some kind uh, when women are coming in for uh, abort, uh, for uh, ultrasounds and uh, this is both private and uh, public providers. So uh, at that stage, they demand identification and uh, there has been a sort of uh, an ad hoc or, or an informal um, approach where uh, providers are sort of leaning towards uh, asking for the Aadhaar and if uh, the uh, patient does not have an Aadhaar, then uh, they may not necessarily ask for other identification. So there could be exclusion at uh, that stage itself. And uh, the second uh, major link is uh, due to maternity benefits. So all benefits uh, across the board, uh, including uh, a number of uh, state and central uh, maternity benefits are linked uh, with the Aadhaar and you have to authenticate yourself or you have to authenticate your identity. Um, if you want to avail of these, uh, you also have to have an a bank account, uh, which is seeded with the Aadhaar, which will uh, receive these payments in case of a direct benefit transfer, which is the case with most paternity benefits. So um, you could then uh, the exclusions could then be happening at two levels. You could either not receive a services at all, which has been the case um, in a few documented cases um, across the country. Or you could not receive your benefits. You could not be eligible uh, for receiving a benefit uh, which you would otherwise have received uh, if you had an Aadhaar. Um, so that's uh, the exclusion is the first step and then if you do uh, get included within these programs then the centralization of information is the other issue uh, and the mother and child tracking system which is um, which basically tracks maternal health indicators maternal and child health indicators uh, in india it's uh, it's a monitoring system uh, that has been uh, now Uh, slowly, in a phased manner, been rolled out uh, across the country. Um, It essentially collects uh, all of the information about uh, the services that a woman would have received when uh, they go to a public provider and uh, each visit that they make is recorded on a physical card that uh, each woman receives, which is called the uh, MCT card. And they they, uh, physically record these so that the woman is able to keep track of uh, the visits that they need to make and uh, the health provider is able to as well. So um, that is the primary function of it. And uh, in that sense, it's been um, highly lauded. It's been successful in uh, being able to track those uh, services and being able to uh, send reminders. Uh, so ASHA workers who are the the uh, on-ground uh, health workers are able to use uh, the system to be able to uh, physically map out the services and send uh, reminders in some cases by physically uh, visiting the patient they are able to send remind, uh, tell, uh, uh, remind them of the services that they are able to um, avail of. And that includes both antenatal and postnatal uh, services during a pregnancy. But um, this has, uh, in a phased manner since 2011, been linked with the Aadhaar as well. And uh, all of this information is then being linked to a central repository, which uh, is being handled by the uh, unique identification authority of India. The UIDAI, and uh, this then there's a sort of 360 degree surveillance model where um, the government has stated that they want information from birth to death about uh, each citizen or resident uh, that they are who who has uh, an Aadhaar card, and uh, so there are several issues that come up around uh, privacy and surveillance as well as around data leaks and uh, the security of these programs as well.
0: Could you briefly describe also the, the apps that you mentioned, Dr. Insta, for example, and the others that you outlined in, in your research?
1: Sure. So uh, Dr. Insta was started by... So, I, so the thing, interesting thing about these apps um, and the actors behind them is that they're not necessarily governmental actors. They're not necessarily private facilities and they're not necessarily non-governmental actors, they're individuals. And so Dr. Insta was uh, individuals from India itself and the Indian diaspora. So Dr. Insta was created by um, someone who was living in America and was actually a a bank executive and an entrepreneur, entrepreneur who worked with a lot of entrepreneurial innovation kind of foundations uh, in California. And, um, He, in 2015, moved back to India and decided to invest a lot of his savings in what is called Dr. Insta, which is essentially a telemedicine service that is supposed to be targeted towards busy individuals who want to maintain a busy schedule and also uh, be able to seek out health services. And so what happens is uh, patients and doctors register for uh, this service, it's an app, and you can essentially get doctor consultations on the go um and doctor insta is funded because because of the because of this doc this, this businessman's um, experience it's funded a lot by angel investors and venture capitalists in india and in the us and uh he partnered with a doctor in india itself to kind of create the service and start the consultations and get a team of doctors to be behind it. So That's Dr. Insta and, and Practo is another app that was created by two engineering students in their last year um, in, who lived in Bangalore. And the first, it was created because one of them kind of wanted to get second opinions on his father's uh, health issues and also wanted to evaluate Quality of the health practitioner that he was in contact with um, to kind of ensure that his father was getting the best care possible. So he, along with his classmate, decided to create Practo, which is an app that allows people to review and rate doctors and allows people to get second opinions if they if they wish to do that. Um, except a lot of the revenue that they get from this app is uh it comes from doctors themselves who maybe want to have a higher rating, and so uh, the way that the business model works kind of boosts doctors' ratings without them actually being reviewed by patients. And um, in order, like, for them to be sustainable from a business perspective, they uh, they aren't necessarily meeting their initial objective. And so, in that sense, it doesn't necessarily uh, it's not necessarily linked to reproductive health. Exactly, but it creates a system where uh, doctors are kind of allowed to continue not necessarily providing the best care or providing complete information and still being uh, rated well or reviewed well based on the business model that this app runs on.
0: So, the next thing I want to ask was around the approval process of obtaining an abortion. Um, And I guess from based on what you said earlier about contraception as well, if you're under 18, um, and what the effect of that approval process has had on pregnant people. um, From your research, I I understood that there is a need to have like a guardian approval of access to abortion um, and the government's involved as well. And so I was wondering if you could talk through what those approval processes are And if and sort of the effect that that would have on the person seeking the service.
2: So, um, just to flag that that's not necessarily the case, uh, that you would uh, need to have a guardian or uh, your husband or whoever it is, uh, apart from the patient themselves, um, sort of sign off on the abortion. Um, But it does uh, end up being the case in. Certain uh, for for certain categories of women. So, um, one vulnerable group that we highlighted already was unmarried women, um, and uh, just because of the sort of infantilization of uh, unmarried women, there has been um, again a sort of local uh, requirement. Uh, local in the sense informal. It's not uh, it's not in the law, but there has been. I did find instances. Um, in Delhi, in major hospitals uh, of uh, providers asking for um, consent of uh, the partners as well. And uh, in the case that um, the woman is not able to provide their Aadhaar card, for example, um, the Aadhaar uh, the card, uh, they do need to have some identification. So, um they still you you can provide your husband's Aadhaar card. You can provide your uh, guardian or your parents' uh, Aadhaar card as well. And um, this then again becomes a source of uh, concern for unmarried women um, if they are not able to disclose at home, for example, that uh, they are seeking an abortion and uh, are. And do not have an Aadhaar card, then they will essentially not be able to get an abortion at a public uh, provider. And uh, this is also the case uh, with benefits. So in the case of uh, accessing benefits, uh, it's a more um, sort of formal process. So you do have to give uh, the details for both uh, husband and wife. So you can see there that all of these uh, benefits are uh, not only targeted towards uh, uh, the narrowly dis- uh, defined scope of uh, mothers within reproductive health, but also um, in a heteropatriarchal family setup. So you need to have a husband, and you're you're only able to uh you you're, you need to have the husband's consent you need to have the details you need they need to have another hard So the entire the, the husband and wife need to provide both uh, the set of details and um you can only avail of benefits for uh, up to two children so that's the sort of uh, family planning approach that's being taken through uh,
0: exclusion as well so if, could you talk about sort of foreign organizations that have a presence in India that work on reproductive, sexual and reproductive health care, um, and, and what they're working on at the moment in the country? Sure. Uh,
1: so there's a lot of foreign organizations operating, operating in India, because like you mentioned before, this is this kind of reproductive health care provision is a big development, international development narrative. So some of the organizations that we've talked about include uh, the United Population Fund, uh, Life Matters Worldwide, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, BBC Media Action, the World Bank, and USAID, which is the United States Agency for International Development. Um, and it's not that these organizations necessarily have an explicit, or not all of these organizations have an explicit anti-reproductive presence. but Uh, They leave out a lot of aspects of reproductive health care, which enable their presence to act in some sort of anti-reproductive kind of rights and autonomy fashion. So um, the one that is really explicitly kind of anti-abortion, anti-contraceptive is Life Betters Worldwide. And unlike the rest of these foundations, it's not a big foundation. It's not funded by a lot of money. It relies on donations, individual donations. And it's a religious-based organization uh, that started in Michigan in the U.S. And it has a lot of partners worldwide. And really their goal is to educate uh, based on the, their interpretation of the Christian faith and what it is that they want to uh, kind of convey in terms of uh, abortions and contraceptions and the like. Um, so they operate through their missions, through churches, through local churches, and through pregnancy centers. Um, and so they partner with local hospitals and local churches and prayer groups. And they don't directly provide any services or they can't actively stop any services from being delivered. But the way they choose to operate is to educate and to inform uh in whatever they understand to be educating and informing and they work with local hospitals to gather groups and kind of relay their message. So that's kind of the one organization that has an explicit anti reproductive presence and is unlike the rest in terms of its size and their objectives. Um, The United Population Fund is associated with the UN and it defines itself as uh, an organization that ensures that every pregnancy is wanted and every childbirth is safe and every young person's potential is fulfilled and so they have kind of an emphasis on family planning which is really the narrative of uh, reproductive health in India in general um, and so it's, they advocate for the inclusion of reproductive rights for adolescents um, and different national strategies that kind of take maternal, child, and adolescent health into account. Um, And they advocate a lot against child marriage and dowry violence. Um, And they promote adolescent reproductive health. But again, it does not necessarily address the totality of reproductive health and everything that they do is really focused more on maternal and child health um, and kind of protecting adolescents from getting married too early. Um, and, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates, um, BBC Media Action, World Bank, um, all these organizations also have very similar kind of programs and initiatives where they focus on family planning and on one end, and then they focus on maternal and child health on the other. Um, that's kind of a two-pronged approach for many of these organizations and, uh, especially for Bill and Melinda Gates and BBC Media Action, they they focus a lot on uh, technological solutions and technological initiatives. So um, there's, a, for example, BBC, BBC Media Action in partnership with um, the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare in India created an app called Kil Curry, which uh, was directed towards rural women to kind of relay information about fertility and um, pregnancy and anti and postnatal care um, for up to two years to women so that they can monitor their, their health and their child health, child's health. Um, but again, a lot of these initiatives and a lot of these organizations really work towards um, pregnancy, like, towards reproductive health that's centered around pregnancy and towards uh, centered around maternity, less so around um, kind of spreading awareness and information around, all the different, all the other services that women have access to and women have a right to. Um, And that's especially the case with USAID. And um, I mean, especially with USAID, that's really kind of caught up in uh, the geopolitics of of relationships, the geopolitics of uh, kind of the tensions that are going on in the US. And that's translated to the services and the kind of development that development initiatives that they have in India and uh, worldwide. And the, the best example of that is the gag rule, um, which states that, which was, has been enacted by multiple administrations and has been enacted by the Trump administration again. And really it's just a rule that kind of states if organizations that do have USAID funding um, provide services or provide information about services or abortion services, that they will not be eligible for USAID funding anymore. And so they're actively working to restrict uh, services to abortion and uh, kind of do not not allow for their organizations to provide the totality of services and information that they could provide. And so again, that's creating a gap from an international perspective, uh, domestically, that is weighing down on the barriers that women already face and is bringing reproductive health as it has always been brought into into like these patriarchal systems that kind of continue to limit access to women um and especially women who would be stigmatized for accessing, accessing these services in the first place
0: thank you so much i just wanted to ask if there's anything else you wanted to add um about work that you're doing at the moment that's related to this or um, anything that's coming up in the country that you, you wanted to mention? Um, if there's anything else? Yeah, I think
2: um, with regards to both of those questions of where is the country headed and our, uh, the, the work that we are trying to develop as well uh, is really focused around uh, public health emergencies and the sort of access to contraceptions, abortion, and um, the right to privacy in those contexts as well. Um, and There have already been organizations so Hidden Pockets I mentioned is one uh, that's doing advocacy and is trying to build community driven um, initiatives around uh, ensuring that there is information at least about uh, contraception and abortion um, in different parts of the country. But these will uh, necessarily become um, issues uh, where women are not able to uh, access these services or um, are not able to travel to areas that uh, are able to provide these. And that's not just the case with um, with uh, abortion in particular, but also say with um, HIV and the ART uh, sort of uh, Treatment that uh, happens with HIV—that's been uh, that there have been several um, initiatives that are trying to deal with that as well because people are not able to access these uh, treatments and these long-term treatments anymore. So uh, I think that's uh, the sort of direction that work at CIS is also going to be
0: taking. Okay, well, thank you guys so much um, for your time. It was it was great to hear about the research you've done and great to speak with you.
1: Thank you, you too. Likewise. Thank you so much.